Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking, the podcast series by the young Lockwood Sour team at UBS here in Houston. I am your host, Liz DeMontron. Very happy to be here today. I am joined today by my teammate, Charles Litton. Hi, Charles. Hi, Liz. Glad to be here. Yes, we're so excited. Is this your first podcast? This is my first ever podcast, wow. not just with our team. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you look ready, so I'm really excited. I'm primed. So great. Well, I'm also super excited to welcome our special guest. This is definitely not his first podcast. He's done many. He's a pro. He is an alumni of the firm, a friend of the team, and a friend of the show, Brad Olson. Thanks so much, Liz. I'm happy to be here. Great. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, Brad is the co-CEO, co-founder, and co-portfolio manager of Recurrent Investment Advisors, which is an energy investment firm here in Houston. We are really lucky to have Brad here today. You know, we've been in this period of kind of overall market volatility for the past few weeks, but I think more specifically, we're also seeing a lot of energy market volatility. So super happy to have him here and hear his thoughts and insights on the space. Yeah, can't wait. Lot to dive into. Lot to dive into. So before we do dive into that, we would love to hear a little bit more about your background, kind of what you've been up to and what you're doing right now day to day. Yeah, thanks, Liz. As you mentioned, I, I started my career as a UBS investment banker here in Houston, went to Rice undergrad and jumped right into energy finance. And, you know, the last 15 years or so has really been a, a kind of crazy journey through energy investing. I've worked at energy-focused hedge funds, and most recently, before starting Recurrent with my partner, Mark Laskin, I was a lead portfolio manager for Boone Pickens BP Capital in Dallas. And prior to BP, worked at Tudor Pickering Holt here in town. So a lot of Houston in my resume and a lot of energy. And as you mentioned, it's been volatile. And obviously, the last five years since we started Recurrent has probably seen some of the most volatility that the energy sector has ever seen. So you know, for Mark and I at Recurrent, our, our wives have been very appreciative that we chose this time to, to start a business in energy investing. Great. Well, you know, we have lots of listeners on the podcast who are in the energy space. We also have listeners who are entrepreneurs and business owners. And, you know, I would love to hear from you about your transition going from a large investment bank to building something from the ground up, being your own boss and all the above. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. One that I, I love talking about, I guess, as every entrepreneur knows, you need to be a little bit crazy to decide to do something like this. And for me, you know, it was about five years ago, exactly in late 2016, my wife was pregnant with twins, our, our third and fourth children. You know, we had had some conversations at BP and, you know, Boone, who always had a, a great sense of humor and was a very entrepreneurial guy himself. He made a comment, very un-PC, but funny joke that guys were running an actively managed energy investing business. And everything I read says that the world is moving in the direction of more passive, more index products. And, you know, for a guy like me at the age of 87, I, I can't even buy green bananas. So I'm not sure I can wait for an actively managed business to make it to a multi-billion dollar size. I think I'm going to start moving more in the direction of passives. And, you know, Mark and I looked at each other and said, we have a good track record. We've raised a bunch of money here. Maybe this is the nudge we needed to, to start our own deal. And so, you know, I came home to my, my pregnant wife and said, honey, I've got great news. You know, me and Mark are thinking about doing our own thing, starting from the <laughs> starting from zero again. And, you know, if people are familiar with the Shark Tank TV show, 
there's no tougher shark to evaluate a business plan than a woman pregnant with twins. And so, you know, she kind of looked at me and said, well, you know, everything I read about energy and about active management investing is oil and gas are going away and active management is going away. And so why on earth are you starting a business doing this? And so that kind of gives you an idea that even back in 2016 and 17, you know, it, it definitely felt like a tall order and a tough task. But you know, building the business for the last four or five years has been definitely one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And, you know, our family has kind of grown around an entrepreneurial environment. You know, some folks, uh, Liz, I've probably told you this story before, but, you know, when we were trying to kind of bootstrap our fund, you know, my daughter, who was probably four or five at the time, we were talking about why I started a business. And, you know, she you know, asked like, well, daddy, why is it so hard to convince people to give you money? And it was like, well, you know, energy's tough. Mutual funds are tough. And, you know, don't worry when the fund gets big enough, we'll go to Disney World. And when I told her how big the fund actually was, she said, well, daddy, it doesn't sound like we're that close to going to Disney World. So, you know, but those are the stories that have, have in a weird way made this all worthwhile. And obviously, you know, kind of getting the business up to scale has been a challenge. And, driving my wife crazy by insisting we eat at Chick-fil-A three or four times a week during like the lean years of, of starting the fund. You know, those are all things that even now we, we look back on the last few years as kind of a crazy, but also a crazy time, but also a time that's filled with a lot of fun memories. So yeah, you know, the reality is now energy volatility has obviously picked up in recent months, but when I compare it to the last few years, the analogy we've kind of used is recurrent was kind of like Forrest Gump shrimp boat that we were kind of this little dinky boat. But frankly, with kind of intense storm that came through the energy space, it's actually sunk a lot of our bigger competitors and probably competitively put us in a, a better position than than we were in coming into COVID. So as crazy as it sounds, when you're an entrepreneur, chaos and uncertainty can kind of be your friend and can kind of help you out as a, as a challenger in a crowded market. So, so many different directions that I could take that in, but I'm sure for all the entrepreneurs that listen to your podcast, they kind of know those early lean years are probably etched into their memory forever. And, you know, that's kind of what makes it fun. Yeah, no, well, it's been super neat to see your team and your practice grow. So that's been a real, just cool thing to watch over the past few years. So as we dive in to the energy, you know, topic that we're going to focus on for this episode, Charles and I thought it would be fun to play a game with Brad, like a name game. So some iteration of, you know, kind of rapid fire, Charles and I are going to drop certain 2021 buzzwords. You know, we're nearing the end of the year. It's been a year filled with just some like catchy words, right? Like NFTs, flight cancellation, you know, just certain, you know, topical things that really get people going. So Many of them don't seem to pertain to energy, but I'm looking forward to hearing Brad's thoughts on why they do. So, Charles, you want to start us off with a word? Sure. Freeze-pocalypse. Oh, freeze-pocalypse. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can see my breath in front of me <laughs> as I think back to sitting in an unheated house in February with my kids all under blankets watching iPads and <laughs> not aware that every movie they had watched up until that point had relied on a working internet yeah, you know, for everybody in Texas, obviously that that period in February was nuts. I, as a transplant Texan, had never seen snow before, but most of the native Texans I know had never seen snow in that quantity before in Houston. So very glad it's over. I'm hopeful that the weatherization measures that, you know, the 
utility commission ERCOT has put in place will prevent us from seeing 40 degree weather inside our homes again this year. Supply chain issues. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I uh, in a way, I remember going on my first kind of post-vaccine road trip this year and seeing a Chipotle while I was in Kansas City that was, you know, talking about hiring people for $20 an hour, helping pay student loans and contributing or matching 401k program for rolling burritos. And I started to think that maybe starting my own energy fund wasn't the right move. But, you know, I think we've seen all these different ways that the kind of restart of the post-COVID economy has distorted things. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if supply chain issues became a 2022 theme too. SPACs. SPACs. Oh, man. Uh, You know, I I don't want to offend any close friends of mine who are involved in SPACs, but my favorite analogy for the SPAC world has always been when I was a kid, there were boy bands and one boy band, Backstreet Boys, you know, worked out and made a lot of money and it set in motion a frenzy to find you know, three good looking guys anywhere in America who are willing to stand around a mic and dance together. And, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, maybe Tesla was kind of the initial example of a business that has kind of a huge conceptual growth potential and became a trillion plus dollar company. And it kind of set in motion a frenzy to find the next Tesla. Now, the same way that I would say you're not going to find a hundred Backstreet Boys, no matter how many good record executives you send out to look for them, it's very hard for me to understand why a hundred multi-billion dollar businesses with no revenue would exist today that didn't exist a year ago. I won't say too much more about SPACs as I probably just lost a couple Christmas card or Christmas party <laughs> invites by saying that. But yeah, that, that's been a, a feature of the market that has probably um, you know perplexed me more than, than some of the others. Activism at major oil companies. Yeah, you know, we've we definitely spent a lot of time talking to clients and investors about what happened at Exxon. I think, you know, a theme that I'm sure we'll dive into later in the podcast is just this idea that, you know, ESG has been great for folks like BlackRock and many other asset management firms to raise assets. ESG has been a huge money gathering theme. But when you actually look at the activist slide deck that was presented to Exxon, out of 100 slides, about 85 of those slides were focused on Exxon losing money or under earning on their capital. And about 10 to 15 of them with much fewer details were focused on Exxon not doing a good job as an environmental steward. And the kind of recommendations for environmental improvements were much vaguer. And so what I'd say is, you know, all the activism at Exxon for all the money spent on that, quote unquote, environmental activism campaign, they ended up getting two oil and gas executives elected to the Exxon board to help steer the ship. So, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, filter out as many of the useless kind of variables and useless explanations as you can. And when you filter out all the kind of fluff from that Exxon campaign, you're left with a very traditional activism campaign that was focused way more on profitability than on, you know, the environment. ESG. (laughs) Yes. Look, I I think we live in a world right now where the E is uh, not all that well defined. I'll say that, you know, are you making a positive impact on the environment? Well, I would argue that a company who has reduced their kind of smokestack emissions by 50 percent 
has done a lot more for the E than a software company that never really had any emissions to begin with. And so if you're an investor and you're driving your greenhouse gas emissions down across your portfolio, I think you're doing a lot more for the E than somebody who is just kind of complacently owning a bunch of software companies that don't impact the environment much at all. And of course, you know, the funny thing about ESG is, I guess ESG sounds better than just saying E, but I feel like the S and the G are are very often ignored. You know, how many ESG friendly tech companies have dual classes of voting? How many of them are dominated by, you know, male controlled boards? You don't hear a lot of discussions about that. And of course, you know, Facebook makes it into ESG funds, despite the social impacts of Facebook being definitely not positive, but but certainly debatable whether, you know, whether or not they're negative. So ESG, I, I find, is has been really good for asset raising firms, very good for active managers who are looking for a theme, hasn't really made as much of an impact on the environment or on society as I think folks would like. Rise of the retail investor or more colloquially, meme stocks. <laughs> yeah, look, as an energy investor, uh, there were definitely some dark days in 2020 where I was just kind of hoping that energy would show up on some of these Reddit boards and take these stocks up 600 percent because there were plenty of companies with with you know weak profitability and declining revenues that were getting a bid from kind of this unseen mass of retail investors. That'll be an interesting one to kind of see how it plays out because I'm not a believer. I don't think that, you know, kind of folks who are working from home and trading options can support the valuations of unprofitable companies indefinitely. But I also know that plenty of really smart hedge fund guys have lost their businesses or or taken severe impairments in their portfolios because they've bet on uh, Reddit just disappearing overnight. So you know, we'll see where it goes. I, like I said, you know, if, if retail investors are going to be part of the mix, I'd love for them to dig in a little bit deeper on energy companies as opposed to, you know, cruise lines and video game stores. Another retail darling, crypto. Yeah, you know, crypto, it's interesting because I was joking with Liz before the podcast started that it's nice to occasionally feel like you're completely clueless when it comes to something and listening to the the art and Manil collection related podcast that y'all put on a few weeks ago, I definitely, I felt, okay, now I am truly not an expert when I listen because, you know, I don't know anything about art. And there are definitely times when I feel like crypto is almost kind of a postmodern art asset class because there's no real historical you know, it's kind of like bidding on something at Sotheby's. There's no cash flow associated with it. There's no kind of long-term track record of how it trades in different types of markets. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that in a period of, of a lot of, you know, central bank-driven liquidity and fiscal stimulus that people are trying to guess on, you know, what could be the next uncorrelated asset class? Is it artwork? Or is it crates of old whiskey? Is it boxes of wine or is it, you know, digital currency. I certainly understand the argument that if you can create something digitally that can't be duplicated or replicated, that it does have certain properties of gold. I guess I don't think crypto will probably ever go away, but is it going to be kind of a, you know, 100% a year compounding return asset class going forward? I'm very skeptical of that. Okay, last one, COVID variants. Ooh, COVID variants. What I will say is, I guess I am somewhat relieved because we have been 
very aggressive trying to get out on the road and try to meet with as many clients in person as we can. Any entrepreneur probably knows that, you know, a Zoom call just doesn't really replicate in-person meetings. And so obviously alpha and beta brought our world to a halt. We had meetings cancel and meetings postpone around Delta. Omicron, at least so far, hasn't really impacted our world of travel and and people haven't seemed to have been as phased by it. So, you know, when my wife and I were kind of huddled up during hardcore quarantine, we followed an Instagram kind of epidemiologist who would kind of talk people through the scarier parts of COVID. And one of the things that was often talked about was viruses evolve and mutate very rapidly. Over time, they get less and less virulent and they get more and more transmissible. Fingers crossed that Omicron is one more step in the direction of less dangerous and more transmissible. And eventually we all catch a really mild variant and that becomes our natural you know, state of immunity. So I'm, I'm optimistic that variants become more of a, a good news item as opposed to a scary news item going forward. Great. Awesome. Well, let's move on. So you know, like I said, we're nearing the end of 2021, starting to, to begin 2022, and a lot of the global banks are putting together their outlooks for the next year. You know, talking to you before this podcast, I like the fact that it sounds like you and your team have more of a midterm outlook, right? Not as kind of focused on the short term. So we'd love to hear from you what, you know, you're expecting on the horizon and energy markets over the next few years. Yeah, one of the big things that we kind of laid out when we started our firm was the irony that energy companies profitability is actually very poorly correlated to commodity prices. And so when we kind of explain our process to folks, people always say, well, what's oil going to do next year? And we say, you know, not only do we not know, but I'm not sure we necessarily really care. Obviously, if you were piling into energy when oil price was negative 30, you've had a really good experience. And if you were kind of waiting for oil price to make everybody profitable, and waiting till oil price gets above 80, you know, historically you haven't done as well. And so when we think about the world, we generally are not trying to forecast or look for a certain oil or commodity price outlook. We're trying to look for a capital market environment where oil and gas companies can't get their hands on enough money to kill the golden goose. And so one of the things that Ironically, there are a lot of energy portfolio managers out there, and there are, I'll say, fewer and fewer energy fundraisers out there. I have the unique blessing and curse of being both. And so when I go and talk to folks, I'm actually really optimistic about the next kind of two or three years because the places historically that have provided energy companies with a lot of capital to accelerate drilling programs, whether that's private equity, whether those are in insurance companies or pensions or endowments, those folks are in many cases publicly swearing off oil and gas. Now, that's frustrating and it creates negative headlines, but from a company or industry level perspective, Historically, 70 or $80 oil has generally driven rig count to about 1,500 to 2,000 rigs in the United States. Today, we've seen oil prices between 70 and 80 for the last few months, and rig count has very slowly increased, and it's sitting kind of in between 500 and 600 rigs. So in today's capital market environment, the commodity price is making these companies revenues. You know, $80 oil is driving the same kind of revenue dynamic as $80 oil did 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, these companies were drilling 
hand over fist to kind of <laughs> fix the problem and and flood the market. Today, with rig count kind of 60 or 70 percent lower than it has been historically at these prices, our view has generally been as long as this industry is starved for capital, you're going to see things like Europe paying record prices for gas. You're going to see coal prices at multi-year highs and you're going to see oil prices supported because there's nobody really out there who can tip the apple cart and flood the market. You know, even OPEC, many others have kind of pointed out that OPEC has not delivered production in line with their forecast all year long. They're having trouble keeping up with their kind of stated plans to service the oil market. So, you know, we're, we're actually, again, the medium term outlook, we're not so much focused on a, on a price. We just know that in a world where companies cannot access outside capital, it's very hard to overwhelm the world's energy markets you know, again, create an oversupply situation the way that we saw back in, you know, 2015 through 2018. Is that to say then that clearly you expect less investment in the energy patch going forward? How much of that do you think is predicated on, you know, the ESG environment? What do you think companies and, and investors like yourself can do to kind of better control the narrative around ESG going forward? And do you actually want more capital? Charles, you're absolutely right. It's a two-edged sword. I think the best way I've heard this described is when it's the hardest to fundraise energy, it is the best time to invest in energy. And when it is the easiest time to fundraise in energy, it is the worst time to invest in energy. We're talking about oil demand growth, you know, one to 2% a year. We're talking about gas demand growth, more like four to eight percent a year in terms of global demand. But we're not talking about, you know, software businesses that compound revenues at 20 percent a year indefinitely. Right. These are definitely businesses that can be oversupplied with enough capital. And so it is we kind of joke that we're totally okay with a capital constrained environment as long as we're able to do some fundraising and grow our business. You know, we'd love to be kind of the one boat, you know, again, the Forrest Gump shrimp boat that survives the hurricane that sends everyone else to the bottom of the ocean. But, you know, I think you you make a very good point, which is the energy industry getting its hands on a lot of capital has always been a mixed blessing at best. And I think your question about ESG is really good. And, you know, I kind of bring it back. When I was at Rice, I tutored a lot of, you know, high schoolers around Houston. And I I always kind of say that, you know, you talk to a high schooler who would say, you know, my math teacher hates me because I I play football. And you'd say, well, you know, what's your grade in math? Like, you know, I'm averaging a 55 out of 100 and I fall asleep in her class because she's so boring. And I, you know, it's like, well, Sounds like there are some other reasons that your teacher hates you other than you playing football. And we always kind of talk to the companies we follow and we say, you know, don't worry about necessarily appealing to the entire world of ESG. Make money for your investors first, because guess what? You know, there has never been a company that is perennially losing money that has stayed in business because they have a a virtue based business model. And likewise, you know, there has never been a company that is consistently churning out massive profits and is unable to attract investment because of ESG perception. And I think when the more you kind of understand the ESG world, the reality is BlackRock is out there 
basically using ESG to grow their index fund business, which otherwise is a fairly saturated business. You know, the only product that BlackRock offers that grows significantly faster than the overall stock market is the ESG fund because it is cool, it's new, it's underpenetrated. And the ESG fund actually owns a bunch of energy and fossil fuel related businesses. And so, you know, ironically, when we talk to some of the pipeline companies we follow, we say, look, the only place that all of your traditional energy funds have seen outflows and you've lost capital probably going out the door through those funds, you've probably seen incremental buying from ESG funds that just use some MSCI metric and just have you as an index weight in there. So, you know, I think it becomes easy to kind of say, this guy's picking on me, this teacher doesn't like me. And, you know, the same way I would say to kids when I was a tutor, like, control the things you can control. If you get a bunch of, you know, 90s and 100s on these quizzes and tests, like, I bet you the teacher is going to like you more than you'd expect. And that's kind of been our message to energy companies as well, which is, you know, right now, like I mentioned earlier, Facebook might make it into an ESG index. If Facebook loses money for people five to 10 years in a row, all of the stories about, you know, Facebook having all this internal research on how bad it is for teenagers or for, you know, young adults, that's all going to bubble up and there's going to be a movement to divest from Facebook. Unfortunately for, you know, energy investors, their trailing performance has been weak over the last five to 10 years and Facebook's made money over the last five to 10 years. So I like to stop short of being cynical and just say that I think reality generally indicates that, you know, if these companies make money a few years in a row, ESG is going to be viewed as as both a boon as well as maybe a, a challenge for the sector as opposed to just a challenge. So can you talk then about some of the maybe technological changes that are occurring in the space right now? I mean, we're all familiar with, you know, fracking and, and the revolution that's been ongoing for the past 15 or so years. As ESG kind of refocuses people's attitudes towards energy and how it plays out in our lives, what kind of advancements are being made or, or what, what are some of the new technologies that you're looking at or seeing in the space that may transition us, right, in a way that the ESG folks would find amenable? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, the reality for energy companies, and this has been something that we've seen it evolve in the last few years, is this idea that you know, pricing a unit of carbon consistently around the world is actually not a bad thing for American energy companies, because if you're a news junkie and an energy news junkie like me, you can read any number of articles about unplugged wells all over the developing world just leaking greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And There are countries where that's not measured. The governments don't care. The operators don't care because, you know, if the government's not telling them to fix it, they don't need to fix it. And the U.S. is obviously a place where, you know, on a relative basis, the the carbon intensity of our oil and gas production is actually really much better. And so this comment has been made recently in the news by different energy CEOs. But, you know, the reality is we can all kind of as Western countries subsidize the purchase of electric vehicles, which, you know, in many cases don't meaningfully reduce the lifetime carbon emissions of driving a car, you know, instead of that, if we just priced carbon consistently, the world would start figuring things out like, 
retiring a bunch of coal plants in China and replacing those coal plants with imported LNG is going to do infinitely more good than subsidizing the wealthiest 5% of the Western world as they buy Teslas and luxury EVs. So I actually am really optimistic that the same way that ESG movement has kind of had this, what I'd call an immature phase of oil and gas must be bad from an ESG perspective. I think it's actually going to evolve into a world of hey, you know what? If we're shutting down a coal mine in in China or India and replacing it with a gas well in Pennsylvania, that's an extremely, to use a finance term, that's an extremely accretive carbon transaction. And it, it involves much less in the way of kind of money losing subsidies than an electric vehicle does. And, you know, I think another thing that we're gonna end up talking about is for electric vehicles to go from kind of 0% to a 3% market share doesn't accurately reflect the full environmental impact of trying to convert half of the world's vehicles to mineral and electricity intensive, you know, EV manufacturing. So I'm actually kind of a little bit of a contrarian in in this regard that if you set a market price for carbon, energy companies with all of their existing infrastructure and existing technology are going to be extremely well positioned to actually turn carbon into a revenue generating or cost reducing profit center because they already just have so much built in in the way of kind of physical assets that that can be leveraged for carbon reduction. So I think you're going to see the ESG movement kind of become much more synergistic as it becomes more mature. Now, obviously, right now, if an ESG fund just owns Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, and calls it a day and ignores, you know, all of those industries or companies' carbon emissions, then that's what I'd call immature ESG. But I think as ESG grapples with where we can really make a difference, you know, American energy and the technological advantages we have here are going to be benefited by that. Along those lines of investing in the FANG stocks and what have you, technology, if you will, and ignoring, you know, the environmental or social impacts, any thoughts on the carbon footprint for crypto? Yeah, it's a really good question. And and look, I think this kind of comes back to we live in a world, whether or not we like it, we live in a world where you get to kind of pick and choose whatever narratives suit your your personal views, right? And obviously there's a lot of folks, whether it's Kathy Wood or, you know, Jack Dorsey at Twitter, who have kind of come out and said we're big supporters of crypto. And by the way, you know, we think humanity's energy consumption should be either drastically curtailed or converted completely to higher cost and less reliable renewable sources. And when asked, you know, like, okay, well, that's great. You want crypto to be emission free, but right now crypto is basically powered by coal plants. How do you feel about that? You get the kind of mealy mouthed, unexamined comments like, well, the more crypto we consume, the more innovation we'll see in the production of energy for generating Bitcoin, which obviously makes no sense, right? Because crypto is is primarily a coal-driven enterprise right now. So, But I think it's just, again, a reflection of the fact that if you want to live in a simplistic kind of oil and gas bad, 
crypto good kind of world, there are definitely news outlets you can read that that won't get in the way of you holding that view. But it doesn't actually make sense with, you know, the reality of crypto, which is that it's a it's a huge source of electricity consumption that doesn't necessarily it maybe stores some economic value, but it doesn't create economic value no matter how big of a crypto bull you are. Okay, great. I think we're nearing the end of our time. Brad, do you have any imparting thoughts? Well, you know, I really appreciate you guys inviting me on. I I love chatting about energy and, you know, entrepreneurship. And I appreciate you guys giving me a platform to talk about that. And again, I, I hope if your listeners kind of got one thing out of our chat, it's that you know, the the world, even the technologically savvy and crypto mining world we live in needs a lot of energy. And frankly, just from being on the road and talking to energy investors, I can say that right now, the crucial energy and raw material industries that drive a lot of this technological innovation, they're not getting the capital they need to uh, continue supplying cheap energy and cheap raw materials that we need to keep driving technological innovation. And so it'll be interesting to see over the next few years whether investors start to kind of accept that oil and gas and other forms of energy are really essential to a lot of the technological changes that we take for granted. And, you know, that'll be a fun story that I'm sure we'll keep revisiting in the years to come. So thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining, Brad. Thank you for joining, Charles. Again, I'm your host, Liz DeMontron, and this has been another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.